There are many privileges attendant to this office for which I am grateful. Another one of those that I'm going to be able to be the beneficiary of this month is I get to officiate two weddings. And I'm glad for that because I get, have been involved in their lives to hear about their, how their stories came together and how love has begun to kindle between them. And it will be my privilege to be present at the day, the day in which they formalize and celebrate that relationship. But what is true of them on that one day, as they are then married on that day, irrevocably, unequivocally, for the rest of their life, they get to learn what it means to be married. Can I get an amen? That all of the pomp and circumstance that they give themselves to on that first day must yield to a different set of modes and circumstances that are unheralded, that you don't drop all sorts of money on this one thing and you don't pick dresses out for other people that they would never be caught dead in again. (laughs) That on that day, for all of its glory, it must give way to an everydayness to love. That though you are married, without question... Then, to borrow a phrase from Paul, for the rest of your life, you get to learn what it means to be married with fear and trembling. It's just the way it is. And that's what's true of marriages. It's true of friendships. What you were on the first day of your friendship is not how your friendship might be 10 or 15 years down the road. And you hope that it isn't. You want it to mature. You want it to discover something even more glorious and resilient than you had ever known on the first day you met. You want that. Because that's its nature. And what is true of marriage and is true of friendship and is true of all sorts of things is also true of faith. That to be sure, if you read the script of the New Testament, you will hear of faith spoken of as a gift. It's not something you conjure or create. It's not something you sort of screw up your will to have. It is something that you receive. That is its nature. But also part of its nature is this thing that is meant to grow to mature, to become even more than what it was because that is its nature. Everyday faith begins on a day and for the rest of his life becomes more everyday and that's what we want to consider afresh by listening to a new voice. And that voice is James, the half-brother of Jesus we think is true, is the one who wrote this letter. James has a few things to say about what it means to live with an everyday faith. We, we tend to think of faith as the thing you put it on a shelf and you, you put neon lights on it and you, you have a disco ball and whoa, faith, faith, faith. You know what? Faith is just something that you don't really herald. It just it happens and it happens in the mundane stuff. Why, why listen to James? We, back in the spring, listened to Paul, his letter to the church at Galatia, and he made it really clear, this faith, that comes to us is bought entirely by the blood of his son. But by chapter 5 of that letter, he says, this faith is working through love. Here's James taking the baton from Paul saying, let me tell you now what it looks like to see faith working through love. A lot of people like to put Paul and James as if they're pistols at dawn kind of people. Oh yeah, I'll show you what's true about faith or what's about salvation. Actually, I think one is taking the baton from the other. 
This summer, we listened to the Proverbs for a very long time because we were in search of wisdom. But as you will plainly see, even in the passage this morning, James has a lot to say about wisdom because wisdom is the essence of an everyday faith. It's just that in this one, Jesus is foregrounded and not so much sort of an echo that we have to reach for when we listen to the Proverbs. That's why we're listening to James. And there's all sorts of reasons we might listen to James But the reason James has a little street cred with us is because of where he begins his letter, which has everything to do with what it means to be this church in mourning for the rails this morning. Because James knows full well that an everyday faith is going to bump into the moments when faith feels utterly impossible. And it will be the argument of these first several verses we'll listen to that everyday faith grows in wintry times, it grows in winter. That season in which most other things might ever either go dormant or even threatened to death, everyday faith can grow in winter. And in these first nine verses, James is just going to say two things about that. That it can and how it might. Everyday faith grows in winter. That it can, how it might. That's the burden of these first several verses. Verses that take on a certainly different poignancy given the moment that this church and this family is facing. So if you're able, we're going to start with James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you're able to stand, would you? James 1, starting in verse 1. James, servant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then skipping down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Some of you may know um, a little thing or two about church history, and you may know that uh, Martin Luther, who was at the headwaters of the Reformation, uh, right around 1517, wrote uh, a treatise on Scripture and decided that the book of James, at least from his point of view, probably ought not have even been included in the Bible. He referred to it then in 1517 as an epistle of straw, meaning not substantial, would burn up at a moment's notice, not really worth your time, not in comparison to what else you could find in the Gospels or in Paul, um, in the letters to Rome or Galatia. He just felt like it was something less than everything else. He thought it was an epistle of straw. And uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, you may know that several hundred years later, he, he literally took a knife to his New Testament and cut out every single verse that had anything to do with the supernatural. Only allowing whatever Jesus might have said about the ethical 
to remain. And, and that was just his way of seeing things. He just wanted to cut it out. And um, I'm, I'm betting that there might be many of us or parts of all of us that having heard just those first nine verses might want to agree with Martin Luther. Why is this in the Bible? I think I'd like to cut some of that stuff out because, man, James, it certainly sounds like platitudes. But here's the thing. Five years later, Martin Luther is writing glowingly about this letter. In his own thinking, in his own wrestling, in his own experience of what it meant to live as a believer with faith, he recognized the importance of a, of a perspective like what James brings to the table. And so I would encourage you to consider that if you have any hang-up about what you've just heard or what you will hear, boy, wait till you get to chapter 2. You might give Martin Luther a little nod and realize that you might be on a journey yourself. And I'll give you a couple reasons why you might get from Luther 1517 to Luther 1522. The first thing has to do with James himself. We don't know a lot about him from this letter. He only says, I'm James. I'm a servant. Listen. From church history, we gather that he was probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. And if you listen to what he just said about doubting, and you think, man, you're a nut. You don't know anything about doubting. Guess what? James, if he's a half-brother, was at one point with his mom coming to collect Jesus because he thought Jesus was a nut. Off his rocker, a self-styled prophet who needed to be reined in. So James knows the little things about doubt, so give him a little credit. He also knows a little bit about suffering because a lot of his comrades were killed. And usually, as Pascal said, you listen to the martyrs who get their throats cut. So James has a few things to say about suffering that's not just him living in an ivory tower to speak about that. Give him a little credit. Here's another reason to give him a little credit about who he's writing to. You, you heard it, him speak of uh, writing to the churches of the dispersion, the 12 tribes. James is a Jew. There are many early churches then who are composed mainly of Jewish people, former Jews who are Jewish Christians, not former Jews, but Jews who are now Christians. And they're scattered in what was then Syria and what is now Syria. He's writing to people in those churches who are people who knows what it means to be haunted and hunted. Because if you're a Jewish Christian, to your former friends who are Jews, they think of you as blasphemous. Because you have said that this man who was Jesus was also God and he walked the earth and he died. And they said, blasphemer. And if you are a Jewish Christian and in your middle of the Roman Empire, like they were, then to an average Roman, they hear you say, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. And so they think, what? You're an enemy of the state. So they're caught in a crossfire. No place is home for them. No place is really a place of safety. Now, why should you care? There's a, a third century fresco, or it's, a, it's actually a, a carving in a wall from the third century. It's called the Palantine Graffito. And in it, you see this figure uh, that's got his arms out like this that appears to be appended to some sort of cross, and the head of that figure is a horse. And there is this guy worshiping before it, and written in Greek there is the words, Alexamenos worships his God. It's the earliest instance we have of the Christian church being mocked for their faith, being thought of as pure idiots. They worshipped someone who is the closest thing to a horse's behind as anything that anybody could imagine. 
That's what they were facing then. Why should you care about that now? Because here's the deal, folks. I know I live in the Bible Belt, whatever that used to be. But I think you all know that the winds have shifted, right? And I'm, I'm kind of taking my perspective from a, a guy named Aaron Wren, who is a, uh, he's sort of an, an observer of culture. And he says, it's happened pretty fast. It's as recently as maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the church, even if you weren't a Christian, would be seen in a positive light. You know, you were the salt of the earth. You kind of help things. You're compassionate. That's good. You believe your thing. I believe my thing, but I'm glad you're here, even though, you know, never the twain shall meet. That was then. And then as we've gotten a little bit closer to our day, uh, a lot of people that kind of think of the church more in a neutral thing, um, you know, you're here. The church is fine. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. Uh, live and let live. You're, that's fine. You do your thing. Just kind of stay out of my business. But according to Aaron Wren, he, he says, you know what? This is the new world we're in. Uh, the church is, from the culture's perspective, no longer seen as this positive thing and, and maybe not even this neutral thing, but now really is a negative thing. That if you believe in certain things that we would associate with Christian faith, now you are an impingement, an a impairment upon the culture. We will not progress as a people until we are rid of this kind of presence in our culture. That's, that's where we are. And though, to be sure, we are not in Indonesia or in Iraq or in Iran where it is dangerous, your life is at threat in those places, you are still now, even here, in a world that has a little resonance with what it meant to be somebody that received that letter from, Le- from James. See, Charles Taylor, he's, a, he's a, a philosopher up in Canada. And he says, the experience of anybody with religious faith these days is this. You may believe what you believe, but on your street, it's pretty likely that you can find 10 other people that believe something diametrically opposed from you. And so you know in your head, because they're just there, that your belief is contestable. They might have another argument. And so he says to believe this day is to believe with a certain fragility. Well, guess what? The same would be true if you're a Jewish Christian when James is writing to you then. So if James knows how to write to them, I think he may know how to write a thing or two to us. And if there's ever a moment in which we begin to wonder if our faith is strong or fragile, it is in the midst of trial. And that's where he begins his letter. To essentially make the implicit case that the life of faith is often a fight for faith. But his argument in these first nine verses, as I've said, is that everyday faith grows in winter that some of the most profound maturing that our faith might ever experience comes through the greatest challenges to it. And you heard that in just the first three verses of the passage when Paul, James starts talking. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be what? Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what is that saying? Because right now, count it all joy when you feed trials. Here's the first part, first moment where you feel like you want to pop James in the face. What? What is James not saying? James is not saying, oh, you got a diagnosis of cancer. Smile! James is not saying, your house just burned to the ground? Grace guys are going to clear up, put on a happy face. I'm not saying that either. 
What James is saying is that what God wants us to be and what we deep down want to be, we want to be strong, we want to be courageous, we want to be mature, we want to be able to stand up under trial, that largely comes through challenges to believing such things. Apart from that resistance, we cannot grow. And, and that may sound like this bizarre thing that, how does that even work? But if you'll just stop for a minute and imagine there are all sorts of analogies that this principle applies as well. Any muscle you have grew through resistance. They don't just appear. Lung capacity. On the first day that you start running, your lung capacity is about this. But about 30 days later, I'm told, your lung capacity is that much higher. Why? Because you applied resistance to the system. Generals become generals not because they pass a test at West Point, but because they're battle-hardened. Our ability to act, to move, to be joyful, to, to act with strength and courage, that, that comes largely through being challenged in the moment when you're not sure it is possible, not sure if you can trust in what you have been told. We use the, the sort of uh, silly adage when we talked about the Proverbs. How does one become wise? One becomes wise by gaining good judgment. Okay, but how does one gain good judgment? Well, through bad judgment. Only when you are tested by fire does something new happen. Look, it is a delight that we send our kids to Sunday school every week about halfway through the service. It's good, it's proper, it's necessary, it lays a foundation. But folks, nothing, nothing has the capacity to fortify one's faith than one's challenges in the face of it. We need Sunday school to prepare them. We need to give them information that they can think about and talk about and ask about and and memorize and recite. And then then they need to be thrown out there in some ways in order to discover what it means to trust when this world will say you're a fool for trusting and your belief is nothing more than believing somebody with a horse head. Kids, trees, marriages, friendships, they're all meant to mature, to discover the fullness of their vitality. And that is also true of faith. Not so that you're out to prove something, but to see something bloom and blossom that it might discover its full beauty. That's that's the way things are, and especially when it comes to faith, because in that is its joy. Joy is not the superficial thing where we're happy we're on the ride at the ag fair yesterday. That's fun. That's great. Had a ball. I'll show you the video later. It's wonderful. But that's not joy. That's, that's joy. Happiness can spring forth from joy. But you know what can also spring forth from joy? The ability to weep with hope. That's joy. And that joy comes through trial. Trials are uniquely furnished to foster that joy because you know what trials do they help us to see the world as it really is and not the way we thought it would be we have to be illumined trials they clarify both the nature and the limits of what we have rested in and have relied upon for so long we think some things are true and then something happens and we discover there's a limit to what we can find there and it's trials that help us to see that trials are what invites us to become vulnerable in ways that we might not otherwise do so. You know, you know that song we just sang, brokenness. Brokenness is what I long for. What? Really? Yeah, really. 
Because it's only by our brokenness that we come to identify just that we're not as strong as we think we are. And we spend a lot of time trying to walk around giving off an impression that we are so pulled together that we've got it all under control and that we don't secretly have all sorts of anxieties and doubts and weeping like that. It is in trials that we are encouraged to experience a degree of vulnerability that the calm waters just do not invite. And that's why the saying goes, roots grow deeper in winter. They have to. We have to put a qualification on what what James is saying, though. Um, We don't want to press the point beyond his intention. James is is not saying that it is um, your responsibility to think that every test of faith that you experience is going to be the measure of your worth to God. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's your responsibility to make every great strain yield a greater gain or a greater strength. And he's also not saying, at the end of your life, it's not your responsibility to make sure that you feel glad about every difficulty you went through. He is saying this. Don't close the door to the possibility that whatever awfulness you face, that God can't bring something good from it. Yeah, you might leave it cracked. Yeah, you may not be as optimistic or enthusiastic about the possibilities you might, but don't close the door. Don't bolt it shut. Don't set aside the possibility that God might bring something from that, even just a glimpse of it, even of just a little bit of light that breaks through that cloud. Don't close the door to the possibility that he can do that. Here's the question, though. James is saying that everyday faith can grow in winter, and he's trying to make that case, which means he also understands That in winter, faith can also be injured. And a lot of us may know that. A lot of us may feel that today. And the question is then, what makes the difference? What makes the difference between a faith that matures in winter and one that recedes or shrinks? Insofar as we might contribute to the moment. That's the other thing that James wants to talk about. Not just that faith can grow in winter, but how it might. We ended the series in Proverbs from chapter 3 when it spoke of the tree of life. And we said that that, that image finds its, its, its origin in Genesis 2 and 3 when it speaks of God placing the tree of life in the middle of the garden, which speaks of the, the foundation of all things. And that it also shows up one other place in Scripture at the very end of the canon in Revelation 21 when it speaks of that which will endure into eternity. That's what the tree of life is a metaphor for. And if you think of faith as a tree from which life comes, then faith, for it to grow, you have to attend to two things. The root of faith and the fruit of faith. If you want to see if if there is hope for it to grow, there has to be attention given to the root of faith and to the fruit of faith. What do I mean by that? When you hear in verse 5, James say this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously all without reproach and will be given him. When you hear him say that, he is talking about the root of faith. Because he is saying you need to go to the Lord and ask him for wisdom. Because what is a trial? 
A trial is a moment in when your world is upended and you are disoriented and you are disillusioned and in those moments you are beginning to have to wonder, is God really good? Is this faith really sound? Is this world at all safe? I remember the first day that I discovered that this world was not safe and I was in the fourth grade. My parents and I go out for dinner. We come back home, start to get ready for bed and I hear my dad scream from the bedroom because somebody had burglarized our house. Taking all sorts of stuff. And in that moment, I remember being terrified. Like, wait a minute. We have locks. There are windows. It's quiet outside. What are you talking about? Now, my experience is not like the Yazidis in northern Iraq. I know. But in that moment, the world was no longer the safe place I thought it was. And every one of us in this world can point to a moment in which we discovered, you know what? This world is not safe. What do we do with that? George MacDonald, Scottish author, theologian, probably goes in places I probably wouldn't encourage us to go, would never be ordained in our denomination, but was definitely the greatest influence upon C.S. Lewis. And one of the things that George MacDonald says when it comes to difficulties, he says this, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. But there is a reality of being in which all things are easy and plain. Oneness, that is with the Lord of life, to pray for this is the first thing. If you would attend to the root of faith, then with this new data, this new experience that you don't know how to fit into your world, into the calculation that you've been relying upon for so long, you have to ask the Lord for wisdom. You have to ask God to understand, what do I do with the new data? I mean, you can think about that stuff, and you can write about that stuff, and if you want to paint a picture about your experience of trials, do it. We'll hang it in the gallery, maybe. But at some point, you've got to get out of your head. At some point, I've got to get out of my head. And I've got to just lay plain with the Lord. I don't get it. And I need your wisdom to help you to help me see that even in the midst of this awfulness, something good might come out of it. Look, when friendships enter a rough patch, when marriages get tough, what is the temptation? To stop talking. Nothing is resolved by that doesn't mean the talking is easy, but there's got to be some talking. And James is saying, when you're up against it and you're in the middle of the trial and you need wisdom to know how to even think well about it, you need to ask. Um, you need to ask in prayer. You need to ask each other. So um, my eight-year-old uh, a few weeks ago uh, walks up to the info desk. And I got his permission to say this. And uh, he just walks up to those that were behind it, the unassuming folk there, and he said, um, excuse me, I, I have a question. I've been wondering, how do you know that God is real? I mean, it, you know, it says InfoDesk. <laughs> right? Right? He's asking a question. Love it. He's not afraid. And neither should you. We have to ask. And we have to get out of our mind. Not that our mind isn't helpful. It just can't be the same thing. It can't be all of it. You have to ask in prayer. You have to ask in community. Why? On the basis of God's generosity. James is saying it. 
God doesn't hear you go, I need wisdom, and go, really, again? Uh, I'm a little busy. He's generous. Holds him to his word. You ask on the basis of his generosity. You also ask him on the basis of his regard for you. And to that point, I appeal to no less than the God-man Jesus who said this in Matthew chapter 7. Ask, it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, it'll be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, don't you love the way Jesus talks to you? If you then, who are evil, know how, much, how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who, what? Ask him. I'm not saying he's going to answer tomorrow. I don't know when. I just know that he says we're supposed to ask. On the basis of his generosity, on the basis of his regard for us, that he might show why in this sorrow it's still proper to think that he's good. If you're going to attend to the root, you've got to ask the one who is the root of all faith. But you also have to do it in a very particular way. And here's the part where you're going to start to feel a little upset again. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And you think, are you kidding me? So once again, let's be sure and be clear about what James is saying and what he is not saying. What he is not saying is, don't ever have have a contrary to thought to what you've been told or what you believe. I mean, good luck with that. God said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, in which case we are also born with an imagination, which means that we can entertain all sorts of ideas, contradictory ideas at the same time. F. Scott Fitzgerald says the, the, um, the, the evidence of a first-rate mind is the, be able, the ability to hold two contradictory opinions in your, mouth, in your, in your mind at the same time. It'll, you'll just go there. It'll, like Maybe he's not good. Maybe he is. It's there. It's not... He's not coming at you for having a, a thought cross your mind. Um, and, and nor is he saying that um, you should always pretend that you don't have any questions. What James is saying when he appeals to these words like diokriminos, the word for doubt, and, and dipsukos, in two minds, a double-mindedness, um, the, the closest thing uh, that you might help you to understand what he means by that is an idiom that's borrowed from South America of somebody that has their foot in two boats. Uh, you ever done that? Um, it doesn't last long. Um, even if there is no breeze or there is no current, if you've got a foot in one boat and a foot in another boat, just by your putting weight on either boat, we start to drift, and then you are nowhere. You are in the drink. It's impossible to be in that way. And so what, what James is saying is, Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Don't, don't confuse it. Don't, don't, don't heap unnecessary guilt upon your shoulders because you think that if I'm doubting or I'm struggling with understanding that that is the unbelief in its essence. It's not. But also know that this doubt is more than just kind of, you know, contradictory competing thoughts in your mind. James here is talking about a habitual act 
of, of working away and working out life in such a way that sometimes you think God is good and other times you think he's totally not good. And you act on those opinions. It is, it is like Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride. Uh, she goes to the altar and then she leaves the altar. She goes to the altar and then she leaves the altar. Look, if you leave the altar, you can't get anything from what that moment is out to signify or provide. James is not shaming people for doubt. He's just warning people about what the nature of doubt is if you habitually act on it in that way. You can't receive anything that way because you're trying to keep your foot in two boats. Now, I know that's still in the abstract, so let me, let me see if I can give you a real concrete expressions of what it would mean that he's talking against here. Doubts come. Doubts stick. Doubts fester. But whatever you do with doubt, here's two things you can't do. You can't let pride seep its way into your doubt. And it's kind of the sexy thing to do these days, right? Oh, I doubt. Oh, you doubt? Oh, I doubt too. Oh, yeah, let me post it on Facebook. Let me show you how I doubt. What's the problem with that? Christian Wyman uh, grew up in West Texas, uh, raised at First Baptist Church. I told you about him there in Dallas. Um, lost his faith. Um, contracts cancer. Has sort of a moment in which he discovers that he had never really left it. But he says this about a certain way of coming at doubt that he says is, is seductive but dangerous. He says this. He's a poet. Be careful. Be certain that your expressions of regret about your inability to rest in God do not have a tinge of self-satisfaction, even self-exaltation to them. That your complaints about your anxieties are not merely a manifestation of your dependence on them. There is nothing more difficult to outgrow than anxieties that have become useful to us. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. And I will, and I hope that you would. But I hope that you would also know that when it comes to the experience and the processing of doubt, that there is something that can enter into it that makes you feel almost heroic for doing so. James is warning against that. And I think he's also warning against not only pride in your doubt, but passivity. And by that I mean this. There are different kinds of doubts that come from different origins. Some of your doubt may be physical. A lot of my doubts happen in about 3.30 in the morning when I am wondering why I'm not asleep. And all sorts of different thoughts compete. And in that moment, you know, I'm not really thinking well. I'm just reacting to the fact that I'm not sleeping. And a lot of you got that experience and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because some doubts are physical. Some doubts are emotional. Catastrophe befalls you. And all of the emotions that spring out of that catastrophe make you think about all sorts of different things. FDR, when he goes and he begins, gets diagnosed with polio, in that moment, by his own admission, he lost all faith in God. Because in the midst of that swirl of emotions, everything that he thought was true sort of like evaporates in thin air because of the emotions that he was feeling because he's not thinking anymore. Some doubts are physical, some doubts are emotional, and yes, some doubts are rational. They are full of thought. But here's the thing when it comes to doubts that are reasonable and rational and, and thoughtful. How do you doubt as a believer with a certain regard for who God is and that you don't know everything? In a debate, the way you know two people are really respecting the other 
is one person can articulate the best argument for why they are wrong. It's called a steel man argument. They identify whatever it is their case is, but then they find the best argument for why they themselves might be wrong. That's what I think we do with doubt if we are doubting in faith and asking God in faith. Whatever our doubt might be, we're asking ourselves, what's the best argument for why my doubt might not be sound? It might be sound, but not until you start thinking about it and talking about it and praying about it. That's, that's how you know that you're not wandering into this double-mindedness that feels either heroic or something that you just sort of let wash over you and you do nothing about it. That's a different kind of trust. It is taking your doubts of God to God. Bizarre, I know. If you don't like paradoxes, you're in the wrong faith. You're in the wrong life. Some of you may know the story um, from a Brennan Manning book um, about a sociologist by the last name of Kavanaugh. Uh, no relation to the Supreme Court nominee. But he, Kavanaugh went to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Uh, she cared for the hundreds of children that were orphaned and deathly ill. And he just spent time with her and he watched what she did. And by the time that he was done and he had to go back, he came to her on the day he was leaving and he said, I need a favor from you. And she said, what is it? And he says, I want you to pray for me. And she says, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, I want you to pray for me to know what I should do with the rest of my life. He said, I want you to pray for me for clarity. And she said, I'm not doing that. I will not do that. And in that retelling, she says this to that man seeking clarity. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. I'm not saying you bury your heads in the sand, folks. Neither is James. I'm not saying you don't ever think, folks. Paul says as much. James says as much. Think. I'm not saying you don't long for clarity. You just don't make clarity the end-all, be-all of whether you can ever take another step in faith because it may not come. And what then? How then do you find that trust when clarity proves elusive? Here's where I land the plane. Because yes, we have to address the root of faith, but we also, I think James is saying, attend to the fruit of faith. What proceeds from it? What is its fruit? And that you got from the last verse of the passage, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The root of faith is God's presence, God's wisdom. The fruit of faith is blessing. There's benefit to it. God does not say, just believe me and trust by faith just so I can keep you occupied. There's goodness that follows from it. And that goodness is such a goodness. And in that steadfastness, there is something wonderful. To ask for God's wisdom is to ask to be pulled into God's heart, into God's presence. But to ask to understand the fruit of faith is to be asked to be pulled into the future of God's faith. And that future, he summarizes in that really evocative image again, the crown of life. You become an Eagle Scout, you get a badge. 
you finish a marathon, you get a medal. If you're in ancient Greece and you run that marathon, they put a laurel wreath on your head. Why? It's a celebration. It's a moment. It's something we all want to recognize. That's a crown. This crown is a crown of life. And that life is a life that does not end, even if you die. And that crown of life comes to those who persevere. And therefore, faith is not something we sort of, at some point at the end of our life, go, no, what was that for? No, why did I do that? And like, what was the point? Faith is that thing where we go, okay, I get it. I was not a fool to have believed in that way. But what is crucial to our understanding of the fruit of faith is this. While faith can be inspired by its fruit and its blessing, do not mistake what the foundation of faith is. Do not mistake where that faith comes from. That crown of life which God bestows, he bestows to those who love him. Not to those who hope that he will one day love them. Not to those who think, if I can just prove to him that I was faithful, that he will be faithful unto me. This crown of life comes to those James says to those who love him. And where does that love come from? Where does that love for God come from? It comes from this belief. The crown of life comes to those who believe that there was one who wore a crown of thorns to make us his own. That crown of thorns was the payment that you might belong to God. Nothing that you have done. This faith to which he calls us is faith in one who wore and suffered and bled that we might walk and know one day a crown of life and walk in faith in this life. It is not an effort to gain his love. It is an expression of a belief that we already have his love. Because if we didn't, this Jesus would not have worn that crown of thorns. And that, friends... We're visitors. This is the gospel. He does this, that we might become his, that we might live in love toward him, and by that love, act in faith. It's the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of faith. And you have to look forward to its fruit, to the blessing that comes from it. But I know and you know that most days it feels like history is headed nowhere if not into a ditch. And so the very idea that there will be this eternal blessing and this tree of life kind of thing is like, you know, Spielberg film maybe, but not reality. And that's why, folks, whatever faith you might have in the fruit of faith that's yet to come, you have to back up and listen to why you would have a reason for that faith. And the reason for that faith is that he rose again. The chance for a crown of life is based upon the fact that there was a crown of thorns and that after that crown of thorns, there was a new kingdom ushered in by a new king who walked around after being dead. In the midst of trials, you know what happens. All of your vision is there. It commands your attention and you can't let it go. It is an obsession. But to attend to the fruit of faith and the root of faith, you have to pan out. You have to loosen up your gaze. And that's the hardest part. Because the trial feels like the most real thing in the world. But it is with faith that we ask him for wisdom and a sense of what is coming 
and a sense of the truth of the gospel and his love for us in Jesus. That's how this world might be different. And then you come to discover, like C.S. Lewis discovered in his book on mere Christianity, that when it comes to giving God anything, you've got to think of it in this way. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you couldn't give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it really is like. It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does. And he is pleased with the child's present. You can't impress him. You can't put him in your debt. You just give to him what is already his. That's faith. That's love. That's trust in trial. And that's how everyday faith might grow in us, even when we're weeping. Let's pray. We want to believe this is true, and not just while we're sitting in this room, but when the world comes crashing down upon us. And when the ones we love are not here with us, And so we ask that you would move in us and help us to rally and by your strength and by your spirit to believe, not to prove anything, but to rest in something that's not of the world so we might walk with faith in it. And we do so in the name of Jesus who gives us a reason to. Amen.